Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 31 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. most significant murder investigations in Cleveland police history remains unsolved after three decades. But some believe they know who is responsible, and the killer or killers are likely to have committed more crimes. Will the truth ever be uncovered? April 21st, 1990. Almost a week after Easter on a spring day, two teenagers were trying to shoot pigeons on waste ground around the ICI Castle Works plant in Billingham County, Durham. As they walked across the empty plot of land, they stumbled upon something that caught their eye. Unusual among the scenery, The mass before them was bones. It was obvious by their size they were not that of a bird or a small mammal. After processing what they had seen, 
the two youths decided to call the police. Investigators tasked with attending the scene recovered what appeared to be on initial inspection. A human skull, lower jawbone, a shoulder blade and a collarbone. An extensive search of the surrounding area was launched to try and uncover any further parts of the incomplete skeleton. Perhaps officers would find clues that might hint at the identity of who the bones belonged to. A human remains detection dog, a highly skilled border collie named Jill, was brought in from the West Yorkshire Police Force. Teams of officers scoured the Billingham Beck area over a half a mile radius in hopes of finding something, but no further remains were located. The land belonged to the ICI Castle Works plant, one of the largest synthetic ammonia plants in the UK and a large employer in the area. The plant was particularly useful in wartime, and after the war, ICI continued to produce other materials like plastics, aviation fuel and fertiliser. Following the discovery of human bones, the beck was drained at ICI Castle Works' expense. However, the police did not find any more remains. After assessing the skull and other bones it was thought they belonged to a young female. When police cross-referenced missing person reports in the area, they learned that an 18-year-old had gone missing from her home a year earlier, just a quarter of a mile from the location where the bones were discovered. Forensic testing confirmed the identity of the deceased female. In early May 1990, results solidified what investigators had expected. The remains belonged to the missing teenager, Tina Bell. Tina Bell left her home at around 8.20pm on June 2nd, 1989, to meet a friend. She promised her younger brother John that she would be back in time to camp out in the back garden with him at their home on Crescent Avenue in Billingham. John had asked his mother if he could sleep in the garden, and he was told only on the condition that Tina would stay with him, a request she readily agreed to. But Tina did not come home to fulfil that promise. John later said, I wanted to camp out in the tent, but I wasn't allowed to on my own, so Tina said she'd stay with me. I remember I'd rigged up a little lamp and some games, but then she went out with her friend and never came back. Tina went to her friend's house on Windermere Avenue for a couple of hours and then left. It would have been dark outside. Her parents, Kath and Bob, were immediately concerned for their eldest child when she did not return home. They reported her disappearance to the police, but like many parents of missing teenagers, the couple were dismissed and told that Tina had likely left of her own accord 
and would come back when she was ready. Kath and her daughter had had an argument earlier that day when Tina was asking for money, and her mother refused. Tina's mother was certain the police were wrong. Tina had not taken any spare clothes with her. She did not have any money or any other personal belongings that a runaway would be inclined to take. It was relayed that Tina was last seen wearing blue jeans and a fawn-coloured top. Her parents were determined to find their daughter, so they went about retracing her steps. Tina left her friend's house on Windermere Avenue after 10pm. She was then seen going to a flat above a fruit shop on Mill Lane. After midnight, she was spotted close to the bus stop between Mill Lane and Roscoe Road, then later walking alone across the playing field at the other end of Mill Lane. This was the last confirmed sighting of Tina Bell on the night she went missing. Tina Bell was the eldest of three children. Her younger siblings, John and Angela, would speak fondly about their sister. They said that she was the type of girl that would do anything for her loved ones. Her siblings were close. John, the youngest child, was five years younger than Tina. He later said in an interview with the Gazette that he was, quote, quite the cocky little kid, and would get in to bother sometimes. Tina would always help fight his battles. Tina's sister Angela, who was two years younger, said that they fought like sisters do at that age. However, Tina always stuck up for her when they attended Revo school. Angela recalled that Tina had a good sense of humour and was caring. Speaking about her sister's generous nature, Angela said that Tina would give you the last penny in her purse. Tina had attended Abbey Hill School in Billingham and was described as being a tomboy who felt more comfortable in the company of boys at school rather than the girls. She had a part-time job in Hartlepool as a community care worker. When she missed her shift two days after she was last seen, her family became even more concerned for her welfare. As the weeks passed, the police made contact with other agencies to inquire if Tina had been spotted in the neighbouring towns and villages, but nothing came from it. Several sightings were reported to the police, although they were unconfirmed and led nowhere. On one occasion, Tina's mother, Kath, borrowed a chair from a hair salon in nearby Norton and sat on the street waiting for her daughter to pass by. In limbo, not knowing where she was or what had happened to her, Tina's father spent days and nights walking around, asking people on the street if they had seen Tina. 
He travelled to Middlesbrough to ask sex workers if they recognised her photo. Angela, Tina's younger sister, said that she and her father Bob would walk miles every day looking for Tina, hoping for any sign that the worst had not happened. They went to an area that was known as the Red Light District and the Job Centre to ask if anyone recognised the quote, immature but streetwise 18-year-old. Angela had been staying at her grandmother's house on the night her sister went missing. She was racked with guilt for years that she had not been home with Tina because Angela felt as though Tina would not have gone out and in turn would not have disappeared. In September 1989... Someone who knew Tina reported that they had seen her standing at a bus stop with a young woman. They had short black hair and a distinctive eagle tattoo on their right hand. The police said, Several members of the public have called to say they might know who the woman might be, and officers are following up those leads. Detectives appealed for the woman to come forward, they could not locate her. Another witness report mentioned that a young woman matching Tina's description was seen arguing with a young man with short, fair hair, close to where she was last seen. The man was described as being around 17 years old, 5 feet 4 inches tall, slim built and wearing a shiny tracksuit top, jeans and dark brown calf-length boots. A police officer said, The description of the girl is similar to Tina, so we are looking at the possibility it may perhaps have been Tina. This obviously makes it all the more important that we collect information on the two, and they come forward so they can be eliminated from our inquiries. Detective Chief Inspector Newsom leading the investigation added, I'm trying to trace anyone who was in the Mill Lane area on that particular night. I therefore appeal for this couple or anyone who saw this couple on the night in question to contact me. I would also urge anyone who has any information with regard to the identity of the man or woman to contact me at the incident room in Stockton. The Bells' first Christmas without Tina passed, and they tried to remain strong and positive. Each sighting gave them renewed hope that she would be found alive, but their hearts were shattered ten months after she vanished, when the police knocked on their door. Tina's sister recalled that she had gone shopping with her mother. When they got back to Crescent Avenue, there were police cars and officers outside their house. Angela's father told her to go upstairs, but she would not. Her father had to break the news when he told Angela and her mother, she's gone. Tina's sister said they just screamed, overcome with grief heartbroken that all the time they had been searching throughout the northeast for Tina, 
her remains were found just a quarter of a mile from home. When the bones were discovered, the inquiry was escalated to a murder investigation. Forensic analysis of the remains determined that they had been subjected to corrosive chemical action and appeared to be bleached. This indicated that whoever killed Tina Bell had tried to dispose of her remains by placing them in a bath of acid. Investigators said at the time that, quote, Anyone who has had a large quantity of chemicals stolen from the area in the last year and not reported the theft should do so immediately. Officers urge locals to check vacant properties they owned for signs of suspicious activity because Tina's remains could have been dissolved in an empty house, a shed or an allotment in the area. It was unlikely this gruesome act would have been witnessed by outsiders or performed in a public place where it was possible the killer could be disturbed. Tina's family had never given up searching for her in the ten months between Tina's disappearance and the discovery of her remains. The police appealed for a lorry driver who was seen parked in the Mill Street area to come forward, so they could be excluded from the inquiry. The vehicle was seen parked close to Rydal Avenue, and the fruit shop Tina was last seen visiting the night she went missing. The investigators said that the driver of the lorry had been described as being between 20 to 25 years old, with short dark hair. The vehicle's trailer was covered with tarpaulin. Officers thought it was likely the driver had slept in the cab on the night of Tina's disappearance. A police spokeswoman said, We would like to trace the driver and appeal to anyone who knows him to come forward. He may be a vital witness. We may be able to eliminate him from the inquiries. The officers went door to door asking if anyone knew anything about the crime and even drove through the area when school children were on their way home, appealing for information over a loudspeaker. Leaflets bearing Tina's photograph and information about her last known movements were distributed to homes in Billingham and posters were hung in businesses throughout Billingham, Stockton, Middlesbrough and Teesside. Tina's parents were devastated. On May 11th, a police spokeswoman stated, there were many reported sightings of Tina after she disappeared and their hopes have been kept up. They thought she was still out there, but just not bothering to get in touch. Now they are beginning to come to terms with the fact that she is not. It's very difficult. Bob and Kath Bell released a statement a week later which said, We know it's a difficult job for the police to find out exactly what happened to our daughter Tina after we last saw her on the evening of Saturday, June 3rd. Because of this, we are appealing to anyone who may be able to help find her killer, 
to get in touch immediately. Now, finding it very difficult to come to terms with her death, and the only thing that will give us peace of mind is if her murderer was caught and Tina was laid to rest. Later in May, the police announced they believed the remains had been placed at the wasteland by an uninvolved person such as a child or someone who thought they were animal bones. Detective Chief Inspector Ron Newsom, who led the murder inquiry, said that the remains had not been buried. Extensive searches of the surrounding area led investigators to believe Tina had been killed elsewhere. A container suitable for disposing of a body in acid was not found. Officers also theorised that a relative or friend of the killer might have tried to help by disposing of the bones. Tina's last known movements were reenacted on an episode of Crime Watch on Wednesday, May 30th. But the response the police received was disappointing and led nowhere. It was nearly a full year after Tina disappeared, and perhaps memories had faded or distorted over time. Tina Bell was finally laid to rest in October 1990. The police were unable to recover any more remains, so her casket only contained what the police could retrieve. Tina's loved ones remained in the dark as to what had happened to the 18-year-old. She was buried at St Cuthbert's Church in Billingham. Cleveland police promised to continue to search for Tina's killer until the case was solved. But this vow did nothing to comfort Tina's parents. They had searched desperately for their daughter when she first went missing. However, then the police did not seem interested. An inquest into Tina Bell's death was held during December 1992 in Middlesbrough. Her then 17-year-old brother John and her mother were in attendance. Other close family members felt it best to wait for the outcome at home. Tina's father Bob, who endured a mental breakdown, was being comforted by their other daughter Angela, then aged 20. The Cleveland coroner Michael Sheffield said that he was almost certain that Tina was unlawfully killed, but the evidence did not determine the exact cause of her death. Over 70 officers had worked on the case to try and find Tina's killer. He even travelled to France, but they were still no closer to answers. Dr. Siva Sumarsandaram, the home office pathologist, said that it was likely Tina's body had been dismembered and dissolved in acid. The corrosive liquid used was so strong that it not only stripped the flesh from the bones and the enamel from the teeth, but it also bleached the bones. Tina had been identified using hospital x-ray and dental records. An open verdict was recorded at the inquest. Detective Chief Inspector Ron Newsom said at the hearing, 
Our inquiries will continue until the truth is revealed and the murderer is charged and convicted for killing Tina. Somebody knows the key to the mystery. DCI Newsom would later tell the Gazette. The body has been subject to a process involving a liquid chemical of some sort, and this process could have taken place anywhere, in a house, garden, shed, on an allotment to name a few possibilities. It gives the public an insight into the sort of evil killer we are dealing with. Officers said that the killer had tried to make the victim unrecognisable, and that it was difficult to imagine the mind of a person who could do such a thing. Tina Bell was last seen with two men in a communal kitchen above a fruit shop on Mill Lane. Their names were Billy Dunlop and Vince Robson. Dunlop was convicted of the November 1989 murder of Julie Hogg in September 2006. A case covered on Season 6, Episodes 24 and 25 of this podcast. Julie had been missing for six weeks when her mother discovered her body behind the bath panel in her Billingham home. Despite an enormity of evidence, it took decades and a change in double jeopardy legislation for Dunlop to be brought to justice for a murder he confessed to numerous times. Julie's mother, Anne Ming, spoke with Tina's parents and planned on doing a press appeal. However, Bob and Kath said they were too distraught to go through with it. Both murders happened in the same year in the same town. In fact, the area where Tina Bell was last seen became known as Murder Mile, after a man named John Sewell was killed during 1991 in a car parts dealership next door to the fruit shop close to where Tina was spotted. Dunlop and the other man, Vince Robson, were questioned at the time, according to retired Cleveland police detective John Matthews, who spoke to Teesside Live. Matthews stated, Vince Robson said she had left on her own, and Billy Dunlop had followed her out, alluding to, it must have been Billy. When we spoke to Billy Dunlop, he more or less said, you want to have a word with Vince Robson about that. Matthews explained that neither of the men were arrested for Tina's death. The circumstances surrounding the questioning were considered a trace interview and eliminate case. Officers had no evidence to link either man to the crime, and it appeared the only way they would ever be able to get an arrest was with a confession. Angela, Tina's sister, said that Vince Robson worked in the area as a painter and decorator at the time, and Tina had, quote, taken a shine to him. Robson moved to Hebden Bridge near Rochdale in West Yorkshire during 1990. He began working at the trades club as a sound engineer. He was never re-interviewed in connection with Tina Bell's murder. However, he was linked to another killing. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It was November 7th, 1994 when 13-year-old Lindsay Jo Rymer left her home on Cambridge Street in Hebden Bridge, West Yorkshire, to go and buy a packet of cornflakes from a nearby shop. Soon after 10pm, Lindsay walked half a mile to the Trades Club, where her mother Geraldine was playing bingo. Lindsay asked her for some money. Geraldine gave her daughter £1.20 and as she did so, she told Lindsay to return straight home after buying the cereal. From here, Lindsay travelled to the spa, which was a short walk, about two minutes on foot. She bought the cornflakes and was captured on the store's CCTV camera leaving at 10.22pm to walk home. The property was not far. Lindsay's father Gordon had been at home while Lindsay went to the shop. He was on the telephone from 9.45pm until 10.20pm, 
so he simply assumed that Lindsay had come home at some point during his phone call and went straight to bed. Lindsay's mother Geraldine came home that night at 11.30pm and she too assumed that Lindsay was sleeping in her bed. However, Lindsay had never walked through the front door. It would not be discovered that she was missing until the following morning when Lindsay failed to show up for her 6.15am newspaper round. Lindsay Jo Reimer was born on February 17, 1981. She lived at home with her parents, Gordon and Geraldine, and her three siblings, Kate, Daniel and Juliet. It was said to be a happy and loving home. Lindsay was a popular student at Calder High School, and she had ambitions to attend university. According to one witness, he had seen Lindsay the night she vanished. He came forward and told police that he had been walking his dog on Valley Road in Hebden Bridge when he spoke with a girl who he believed was Lindsay. He said that the girl stopped him at around 11.30pm and asked for a light and then continued walking in the direction of Hardcastle Crags which is a National Trust spot. There would be a handful more witnesses who reported seeing a girl matching Lindsay's description around the same time. A teenage boy claimed to have seen Lindsay at a bus stop in Hebden Bridge at around 11.15pm that night. A search for Lindsay Joe Reimer was launched, and police officers would comb through the hills of the surrounding Yorkshire Pennines. Police divers would be called in to search the River Calder and the Calder and Hebel Canal, but their search was fruitless. There was no sign of Lindsay. Missing person posters with Lindsay's face emblazoned on the front alongside details of her disappearance, were printed and distributed throughout the area. Her friends and school teachers even travelled as far as London with the missing person posters, so that news of her disappearance would reach further afield. Furthermore, Lindsay's loved ones organised a search of Moreland, and they were assisted by more than 100 volunteers. However, once again, no meaningful tips were uncovered. Her father, Gordon, spoke with a reporter for The Independent, and he was of the opinion that his daughter had been abducted and murdered, stating, Our lives over the last three days have just been spent waiting and hoping, but our hopes are dwindling away. Police, on the other hand, suggested that Lindsay may have simply run away from home, despite the fact no triggering issues were uncovered in her life. A newspaper bag had been packed for her round the following morning, which did not signify that she had planned on disappearing. It was a small but strong indicator that she was preparing to deliver the papers as scheduled. 
In such a small town, the rumour mill was running rampant, and some of the community turned on Gordon, assuming that he was somehow involved in his daughter's disappearance. Police received a plethora of phone calls from strangers who had never met the family, naming Gordon as his daughter's killer. They said that while everybody who knew the family contended it was a happy home, quote, good parents would have noticed that Lindsay had not come home that night. In fact, the Rymer family had been stronger than ever at the time Lindsay vanished. In the years before, Gordon and Lindsay's younger brother Daniel had moved out following a brief separation. However, the family reconnected, and the temporary separation had only tightened their bonds. Many of the phone calls had come in following a press conference wherein Gordon pleaded with the public for assistance in finding his missing daughter. His demeanour did not convey his upset. Some members of the public said he appeared less than distraught, and a cloud of suspicion immediately engulfed him. Geraldine had been too distraught to even appear at the press conference and Detective Superintendent Tony Whittle, who was leading the investigation, said, We had a few phone calls saying it was Dad who was responsible. His manner and his facial expression seemed unusual. Ebden Bridge was somewhat of an alternative community. Some officers had even described it as a, quote, hippie community. D.S. Whittle explained, It is a community with a different lifestyle, but they have been at least as helpful as any other. There is a hippie commune there with plenty of ponytails, but there is no crime rate to speak of, and it is more of a community than a commuter estate. In fact, the quiet Pennine town was where organised Methodism had been born cobblestones and moored barges made it a popular tourist destination. It was an exceptionally safe town, and it would not be uncommon to see 13-year-olds walking to the shop alone late at night, much like Lindsay had done. Many in the community even left their doors unlocked because of the low crime rate and the sense of security it afforded them. With nothing else to grasp hold of, Some suggested that Lindsay had become disenchanted with the unorthodox lifestyle of the town and simply ran away. As the days trickled past with no leads in the case, police would get Lindsay's 20-year-old sister Kate to retrace Lindsay's last known movements in the hopes that it would be able to refresh someone's memory. On the night she vanished, Lindsay had been wearing a sweatshirt with the words Dossie Posse written on the back and boots with a yellow motif. She was also wearing a watch with fluorescent markings. After performing the reenactment, Kate said, It was horrible. My heart was thumping all the time. The days eventually transformed into weeks yet there were no new developments to report. A search was ramped up, with volunteers trawling through empty buildings, 
Lindsay's family had written to more than 6,000 local businesses and residents, asking if any empty properties they owned could be searched. Concern had turned into fear, and there was an increasing uncertainty in the air that someday somebody was going to discover something disturbing. Police would learn about a bearded white man, estimated to be in his 40s or possibly 30s, who had been approaching children with undue interest before and after Lindsay's disappearance. He had allegedly been staying at a hotel in Sheffield and had seemingly disappeared after Lindsay vanished. Officers appealed to the public for information about this man, revealing that he was driving a red Honda with the registration FYY. 215W. The vehicle had been stolen in Leeds and then abandoned in Sheffield. The car was recovered and a forensic examination turned up no evidence that Lindsay had been in the vehicle. The year following the young teenager's disappearance would come to a close with no new developments. Christmas and Lindsay's birthday had passed, and it was hoped that if she had run away, then she would have at least called home. But there were no phone calls or letters. In February, police launched an appeal in Scotland. When Lindsay's bedroom was searched, officers found a roll of film which featured a Scottish castle. However, she had never been to Scotland. Detective Inspector Graham Sunderland would state, if we can identify the people in the photos, it may explain how they got there. Despite an appeal, no tips came in. Then on April 12, 1995, two Calderdale council workmen doing routine checks spotted something floating on the surface of Rochdale Canal, around two miles outside Hebden Bridge. One of the men, Andy Glover, said that at first they thought it may have been a sheep. He used a grappling hook to reel the object in and was horrified to discover that it was the body of a girl. He noticed immediately that the body was wearing the same clothing that Lindsay Jo Rymer had been wearing when she vanished. The following day, the body was positively identified. The remains had been weighed down with a 28-pound boulder, which indicated that she had been murdered as opposed to accidentally falling into the canal. When Lindsay's body was disposed of, it had sunk underneath a dredger. Then in January, before she was found, there was a flash flood and the canal had burst its banks. There was so little water in the canal that the dredger had sank into the silt, so Lindsay's body was trapped. The six-foot-deep canal had recently been dredged, bringing her body to the surface. 
An autopsy was conducted by Professor Michael Green, a home office pathologist, who said he had initially failed to find a cause of death. Further tests determined that she had most likely been strangled. A voice box had been flattened against her spinal column, and there was evidence of compression across the muscles in the front of her neck. There was no evidence of sexual assault. The missing person investigation transformed into a homicide inquiry involving 60 police officers. D.S. Whittle announced that the authorities believed that Lindsay had been murdered on the night she vanished, and then her body was dumped in the canal in the hours before her parents reported her missing. The detective stated they were working on the theory that Lindsay had been killed by somebody she knew. D.S. Whittle said, She was quite a cautious girl, not streetwise. She is more likely to have got into a vehicle with someone she trusted. Whoever did this is bound to have been affected by it, and I believe there is someone within the community who perhaps, since November 8th, has suspected they know the identity of the person responsible. An unlit towpath connected Lindsay's home to the spa, where she had purchased the cornflakes. Police were working on the assumption that this could have been where she was attacked. Parts of the River Calder ran close to the street where Lindsay lived with her family, and it had been searched back in November by police divers. However, they admitted that the specific area where Lindsay's body was found had not been. D.S. Whittle said, The indication to us was that Lindsay disappeared on her way home. If she went into the canal, the flow of water would have taken her body in the other direction. It was a mistake. I recognise that fact. Following the tragic news, Lindsay's family would release a statement. It mentioned that the discovery had ended five months of anguish and worry in the most abrupt and final way. It ended a hope that has sustained us throughout this period. Relatives also thanked, quote, the ordinary people of our community and beyond for their kindness and support. Although we now know what has happened to our daughter, the circumstances around her death remain unclear. We will not rest until we have determined what happened. Police would once again appeal to the public for information, this time to catch Lindsay's killer. They were convinced that Lindsay was killed by somebody who lived in the community of 4,500 people as opposed to an outsider and suggested that somebody living in the town knew who the killer was and was potentially even protecting them. The man we are seeking could be someone's husband, son or brother. We are asking people to look around at property they know, people they live with, people they associate with or indeed their partners, and ask themselves certain questions, said Detective Inspector Sunderland. 
Police are also considering the theory that Lindsay Jo Reimer had accepted a lift from somebody that she knew. Her body was found in an area that only locals would know how to find. Her body had been dumped in part of the canal that was alongside a well-lit factory. However, the killer must have known that the busy factory did not have security after dark. The S. Whittle would suggest that somebody who offered Lindsay a lift could have been sexually attracted to her. They could have taken her to the factory where their advances were rebuffed. The detective said that there was a chance that the person did not know how to respond and, quote, strangled her by mistake. D.S. Whittle asked the community to think of anybody they knew. Was there someone who was acting differently, potentially acting remorseful? Police considered that Lindsay may have been killed by somebody that she had met two days before she vanished, during the Hebden Bridge traditional bonfire night celebration. Her mother Geraldine would say during a press conference, I believe this man has watched us for 22 weeks and two days as we searched every corner of Hebden Bridge. He has watched us and probably laughed at some of the efforts we have made. Geraldine also wrote a letter to her daughter's killer that was released in the media. It read, To the person who murdered Lindsay, you have become as important to me as Lindsay herself because you were with her when she died. I was with her when she was born, and I was with her for thirteen and three-quarter years. I was there to share every moment that was important to her. The one moment I can't share is the moment that she died. I loved her very, very much. She was my baby. We always called her Baby Lindsay. Those last moments give me such horrors because I couldn't be there to help her and I couldn't be there to share with her what she was going through. You know what happened. I don't even know what her last words were. Did she ask for me? Did she scream? Really suffer? Was she so frightened? I need to know. I couldn't sleep for weeks after Lindsay disappeared because every time I closed my eyes I'd see her face. And her face would be twisted in so much pain and so much terror that I couldn't cope with it. I don't know if you sleep at night. I don't know if you manage to go through your days and push out of your brain what you did to Lindsay. I know I can't. Every waking moment is consumed by the fact that Lindsay is not here and the reason that she is not here. These last few weeks since the start of the new school year, walking through Hebden Bridge and seeing the children from Calder High School in their uniforms, all the girls look like Lindsay to me. Their hair, their clothes, some the way they walked, some an expression on their faces and some the way they wave their hands, and it's absolute torture for me. Do you walk through Hebden Bridge? Do you see them, these children, 13 and 14-year-olds? Do you feel the same as me, 
Can you look at them and not feel remorse and sorrow and such utter sadness? Because that's what I feel. Please help me to understand why. Please help me to come to terms with what happened to my child. Only you can do that. You are so important to me. On April 23, 1995, Lindsay's funeral was held at St. James's in Hebden Bridge. The service was led by Reverend Martin Parrott. He told the mourners that Lindsay's killer was not going to evade justice. He said, Whoever did this to Lindsay will not get away with it. If they avoid the skill of our police service in this world, then God will judge them in the next. The police who were working on the murder investigation were present at the funeral, in part to pay their respects to Lindsay, but also to hope that the person or people responsible might slip up. There have been many instances of killers showing up at their victim's funeral. In an attempt to generate some much-needed leads, another reconstruction was carried out on November 6th. Once again, Lindsay's sister Kate retraced Lindsay's last known movements from the trades club to the spa. It was one year since Lindsay had been killed, and the police were no closer to finding her killer than they were on day one despite the fact over 1,000 people had been interviewed. Over the intervening years, police would routinely appeal to the public for information regarding Lindsay's murder. In 2014, for the first time ever, the police investigating the murder would use a tweet construction to try and bring awareness to the case. It was a reconstruction of Lindsay's last known movements and the appeal was launched on Twitter. The police encouraged everyone to watch the video and then retweet it so that it could reach far and wide. It came at the 20th anniversary of Lindsay's murder. The following year, Kate would speak publicly about her sister's killing. She said to the Huddersfield Daily Examiner that while the killer may have gotten off scot-free, it was Lindsay's family that had been given a life sentence. Kate said... We miss her so much, but every memory of her is tainted. It is so painful and bleeds into everything we do. In the aftermath of Lindsay Jo Rymer's murder, her parents divorced. Then in 2016, it appeared as though there was going to be a breakthrough in the case when a new DNA profile was identified, and it was hoped that it could lead to Lindsay's killer. 
DNA evidence that was recovered was sent to Canada to be analysed using advanced DNA testing techniques. Detective Superintendent Simon Atkinson told reporters, Our Canadian colleagues are doing some groundbreaking forensic work, so we sent some of the forensic exhibits over to them. They have been able to develop a DNA profile which we are really interested in developing further. Sadly, however, nothing ever came of this development. The following year, former DS John Matthews of Cleveland Police would publicly disclose that he believed officers who were working on Lindsay's murder at the time had overlooked a potential suspect. As part of his investigation into the murders of Tina Bell and Julie Hogg in Billingham, Detective Superintendent Matthews had interviewed Vince Robson. He had moved to Hebden Bridge. Robson, who passed away in 2005, had connections to Tina's family, Julie's family and Lindsay's family. Tina and Julie had both been killed during 1989 in the same area where Robson lived. Afterwards, Robson moved to Hebden Bridge and then Lindsay was killed. All three women had been strangled and Robson had connections to Billy Dunlop who was later convicted of Julie's murder. Robson had also been involved with the Trades Club, where he had worked as a sound engineer. Before going to the spa on that fateful night, Lindsay had popped into the Trades Club to get some money from her mother. It was at the Trades Club where Robson had been interviewed for a second time by D.S. Matthews in relation to the murders of Julie Hogg and Tina Bell. In fact, Robson was one of the last people to have seen Tina alive in a communal kitchen at a flat on Mill Lane in Billingham. As D.S. Matthews said, I thought it was ridiculous to have the same circumstances 100 miles apart. How unlikely would it be if that person was innocent? In that line of work, you don't believe in coincidences. West Yorkshire Police would confirm that Vince Robson had been interviewed at the time of Lindsay's disappearance and was investigated following his death. However, they would not disclose why Robson was ruled out of the inquiries. Just the following month, a 63-year-old man was arrested in connection with the murder of Lindsay Joe Reimer. He was released the following day on police bail. In April of 2017, a second man was arrested in connection with Lindsay's murder. He was a 68-year-old man from Bradford. like the previous suspect, he was also released without charge. So where are we now? Five years after a coroner returned an open verdict into Tina Bell's death, 
the authorities began reviewing unsolved murders throughout the nation, and the Cleveland police renewed their investigative efforts into Tina's murder. A £25,000 reward from the Police Contingency Fund was offered by the Cleveland police in October 1999, in the hopes of new information being brought forward. A press conference was held at the Cleveland Police Headquarters in Middlesbrough, where Tina's parents and brother spoke. John Bell, then aged 23, had been grieving his older sister's death since he was 13. He said at the press conference, I was a schoolboy at the time, and we were one happy family. Then Tina went missing and never returned home. We searched and prayed that the next knock on the door or the next phone call would be Tina coming home. But instead, what did come was the police to tell us my sister's remains had been found. Tina was dead. The day we got that news, it was like a big sledgehammer smashing a picture you treasure. Everything was broken and could not be replaced. From that day, we have hoped and prayed that somebody out there would give us the knowledge of who the person or persons were who did this, where they are and why. We've never stopped grieving. It's been years and years of stress and crying. We never stopped hoping someone would come and tell us why she died, how she died, and when and where she died. Please help us lift some of the pain so we can get on with our lives. My mum and dad lost their baby. She was the eldest, but she was their baby. The firstborn. For ten years we have lived this nightmare that somebody knows what happened. We want this person or persons to come forward or for somebody to give them up. That might start to give us peace of mind and prevent some other girl going out on a Saturday night and not coming home. At the press conference, Tina's heartbroken parents said that they lay next to each other like planks of wood each night unable to sleep knowing what the other was thinking. Tina's brother pleaded for information, saying that he was not looking for revenge or the details. He just wanted to know why Tina had been killed. He said that he spent a lot of time speaking to Tina at her grave or to her photograph, and that even if people thought he was crazy for doing it, it brought him comfort. John spoke about a carriage clock Tina had bought her mother for Christmas the year before she went missing and compared its importance to him to the Queen's Jubilee crown. His mother, Kath Bell, asked, What had my Tina ever done to deserve this? When the case was reopened, Chief Superintendent Peter Wilson took the lead. He said at the time, Tina's family have been very brave in facing up to our new inquiry and helping us. If this £25,000 reward is what it takes for Tina's killer to be brought to justice, then it is worth every penny. 
I am of the firm belief that somebody from Billingham who may not be living there now has knowledge of what happened. I'm not prepared to go into specific details for obvious operational reasons, but I know there is somebody out there who can supply the police with vital information. We only need a start that could lead us ultimately to the person responsible for this horrific crime. That at least will allow Tina's family to have some form of peace. A month later, Chief Superintendent Wilson said that people who had not come forward during the original inquiry had since provided new information and that detectives were following up on all the new leads. Wilson said, This response to our appeal only reinforces my belief there are people, particularly in the Billingham area, who have information that will help us bring Tina's killer to justice and bring some peace of mind to her grieving family. Tina Bell's siblings have made numerous appeals for information in the years since her death, despite the pain it causes to relive the trauma. But the case remains unsolved. In 2004, the case file was passed to the murder investigation team at Cleveland Police, now responsible for the unsolved murders in the area. Team leader Detective Superintendent Gordon Lang said in an interview with the Gazette, Unsolved cases are never closed, and we will react to any information or intelligence made available. Our determination to catch Tina's killer has not diminished over time. We remain determined as ever. Age 23, Angela moved to Hull, but returned to Billingham to visit her parents and her sister's grave. Now her daughter Hannah helps her to look for information about Tina's murder. Angela believes that someone in the area knows something and that it could not have been a lone killer. Speaking about her sister, Angela said in an interview with Teesside Live, She was a big lass. It would have taken two or three of them to get hold of her. I just wish they would confess or slip up somehow because it's not fair. I don't want to know how she died because I know she suffered. I just want justice for her. Tina's brother John has stayed in Billingham. He said that he would like to think his presence there has an effect on whoever hurt his sister. In a 2011 interview with Teesside Live, John said, I feel like I would be turning my back on Tina if I left here. I believe that someday somebody will give us the answers. I will keep hoping and praying for the rest of my life, but I just really hope it's in time for my parents. My dad was always my hero, as is the case with most boys, but he has been a tortured man. Tina was his little girl, his firstborn. He is coming up 80, and I would give anything to see him have closure before he goes. 
We have never been able to lay Tina to rest. Everybody deserves a proper funeral and burial, but Tina has never had that. As a family, we don't feel she will ever get rest because of that. The crime is still going on for Tina. Tina Bell would have turned 50 years old in 2020. Her sister Angela told the Gazette that they would have had a massive party if Tina had not been killed 31 years earlier. Her brother John said that the pain goes beyond the milestones Tina has missed, like birthdays and Christmas. It is with them every day. He explained that the murder had affected all their lives, and that, quote, For a long time, I wasn't John Bell who could play football, or John Bell the scaffolder. I was John Bell whose sister was murdered. After Tina went missing, Bob and Kath Bell scoured the streets in desperation. When they found out she had been killed, they were too heartbroken to watch the news or read any reports about the investigation. Over 1,000 witness statements were taken, and hundreds of leads were followed. But unfortunately, Kath and Bob Bell did not live to see justice for their eldest child. The case remains unsolved. The police do not know who killed Tina Bell, why they killed her, or how and where she was killed. Bob Bell once told the Northern Echo, I still believe after all this time that someday this terrible case will be solved. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Michael Seven, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M. O-D-I-L-O dot com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress.